0: Good morning to you. Good morning. Tis the season when folks set up mangers, and in those mangers there are some familiar characters. Joseph and Mary are usually there alongside baby Jesus. There's often a donkey, perhaps an angel, uh, maybe a couple of shepherds. Sometimes there are three kings bearing gifts, but our modern mangers don't always accurately portray the biblical story. So today we're going to do a little bit of Christmas myth-busting. And so I'd like you to leave all your preconceptions at the door, and let's let God's Word shape our understanding of the Nativity. If you turn with me in the Word of God to Matthew 2. Matthew chapter 2. Uh, we're going to be in Matthew 2 for three Sundays. Uh, the two more uh, just leading up to Easter here. Uh, Jason will be with us next Sunday in a different text. But we're going to be in Matthew 2 for three Sundays... Uh, if you don't have a copy of scripture with you, you can feel free to use one of ours. Matthew 2 should be on page 1026, 1026 of the Blue Pew Bible in front of you. As you turn to the word of the Lord, let's turn to the Lord of that word in prayer. Lord Jesus, thank you for an opportunity to gather today. Thank you that we can look at the Christmas story, part of uh, what we think we're so familiar with. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to see the truth of the Magi story, uh, that we can brush past some of our tradition and and get back to the realities. And Lord, I pray that we wouldn't just have a long uh, lesson on history, but we would consider our eternal destiny because you sent Christ to seek and save the lost, that this was your rescue mission to mankind, Uh, this is the promised Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, you could take on the sin that we cannot deal with, and you could come victoriously over death, the devil, and the grave, uh, showing, indeed, that you are the way, the truth, and the life, as we've sung. We pray, Lord Jesus, that the point of Christmas would not be lost on us, and that you would use this message to help us to focus in on Jesus this season. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the Word of God says in Matthew chapter 2, And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people, Israel. And then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them at what time the star appeared And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you found him, bring me word, so that I too may come and worship him. And after listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced with exceedingly great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down, and they worshipped him." And then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and he took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. And then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious and he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem in that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled, as spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. When did all this occur? Well, in many uh, nativities, the magi are sort of hanging out by the manger, but is that biblical? Biblical? Matthew 2 tells us that after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. It would seem that the Magi started their trek after the birth of Christ. That's what it says. After Jesus was born, the Magi came. And, and when is that after? Well, it seems to be it's about a year after. Uh, it's hard to be totally specific, but the text gives us a number of clues. How do we know it's about a year after? Well, verse 11 tells us that these magi went into the house. They saw the child, and they fell down and worshipped him. But where was Jesus born? Was he born in a house? He was born in a Manger. Okay, so apparently Jesus is no longer in the manger. By the time the Magi pitch up, uh, he's been relocated to a proper homestead. Secondly, the Bible uses two different words for Jesus. In Luke 2, speaking of his birth, and in Matthew 2, speaking of the Magi, the Bible uses two very different and specific words. In Luke 2, when the shepherds are on the scene, the Holy Spirit, to describe Jesus, uses the Greek word brephos. And it means an infant, one no older than an unweaned child. It's a very definite, young, infant type of word. Now, by the time the Magi arrive in Matthew 2, the Holy Spirit uses a different word. The Holy Spirit moves the pen of Matthew to call Jesus a Pidon, not a brephos. And a pydon means a young child, but not an infant. So two different ages are in view. Thirdly, the text is going to provide another clue. In Leviticus 12, it specifies that every Hebrew male child was supposed to be dedicated to the Lord around 40 days. After his birth, you would present him on the, about 40 days after. And the mother was to offer a lamb for this purpose, for the dedication of a child unto the Lord. If she could not afford a lamb, she was allowed to offer either a pair of pigeons or turtle doves. Now, the Bible tells us in Luke 2.22, in Luke 2.22, that when the time came for their purification according to the law of Moses, that's the Levitical law, Leviticus 12, they brought Jesus up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice according to the law of the Lord. And it says, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons were what they offered. Now, this is rather conclusive proof then that the Magi had not arrived within the first 40 days of Jesus' life because one of the things they gave Jesus was a great gift of gold. And if you had the gold, you could afford the lamb and they would have presented a lamb. So the Magi arrived at least 40 days after Jesus' birth. That's very clear. But when you look at Herod's actions, you're going to see that it's more than just 40 days. It's probably about a year out. Um, verse 16 tells us that Herod, when he saw he had been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. And he sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem in the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. You see, Herod noted, well, when did you see the star?" And he shrewdly calculated, let's cover the spread. Let's go basically a year in either direction. And so two would take everyone one to two, and everyone one and under. So one looks like about the time. It's hard to be super precise, but Herod's actions, uh, the, the use of pigeons, the fact that they were not in the manger, tells us probably about a year after the birth of Christ. So Christmas myth number one, busted. The magi were not present... At the Nativity. So the next question is, who were these Magi? How many of them were there? We think we know this, right? The Christmas carols tell us, "We three kings of Orient are bearing gifts. We traverse afar, field and fountain, moor and mountain, following yonder stars. Why I never sing, okay? never sing. We funeral I'll stand off to the side. You'll see. You'll see. I never sing." Uh, in the Middle Ages, legend arose that these three magi, not only were there three, but, but as the song says, in the Middle Ages, they thought they knew their names. And they thought their names were either Gaspar or Kaspar, depending on whether you talk to the Armenians or others, Abalthazar and Melchior. And in the 12th century, there was a bishop who said, hey, I've got their skulls. That's pretty specific, isn't it? Some said that these three kings represented uh, the sons of Noah, and therefore all peoples were represented in the Magi's worship of Jesus. And and based on that assumption, you'll find Christmas cards that have an Indian-looking king and a Middle Eastern-looking one and an African-looking one. But these traditions say more than Scripture. In fact, they say some things that don't seem to follow Scripture. We have no idea how many magi were actually present in Matthew 2. It doesn't tell us. Yes, we do know they brought three gifts. But that doesn't mean that they each brought a gift, therefore there were three. These were the three things that best fitted the worship of a king in the ancient world. And so if a hundred magi showed up, or just two, we know that magi is plural, so there's at least two, they would have probably brought those same three gifts Scholars tell us there were almost certainly more than three magi, but it's hard to get too specific. Magi almost always traveled in an extensive caravan, and they would have cavalrymen and attendants coming along with them for their protection and their convenience. And so the second myth busted is that there were only three magi, probably more. The third myth is, well, the magi were representatives of all mankind, just like the Christmas card says. Well, The Bible says the Magi were from where? Not from the East. Not from all mankind, but from the the East. Okay, so historians tell us, now this gets hard because the Magi are a hard group to sort of track down. You have to do a lot of ancient Near Eastern research, but it seems to be that the Magi were Medo-Persians, not representatives of all locations, but rather Medo-Persians, Mesopotamia, the land between two rivers, uh, Iraq, Iran, that kind of an area. The Magi seem to appear in world history around the 7th century B.C., and and they're a tribe within the Median peoples of Mesopotamia, And, and the name Magi sort of is associated with the priesthood of that particular tribe. And they were a very unique and powerful group of people. They combined astronomical observation with astrological speculation. That was their forte. The Magi played both a political and a religious role, and they were people of of, of great prominence within their provenance over there in Mesopotamia. The Magi were involved in occult practices, including sorcery, and they were very famous this was their forte, their specialty, in interpreting dreams. That's what they were supposed to be really good at. And so it's from this band of priests that we get our English words magic and magician. You starting to see the connection? Okay. So the fourth myth is that these guys are kings. And that's not true either. Uh, the magi were not really kings. They were king makers. Some allege that no Persian was ever able to become king without the Magi coronating that king. In the Bible, the Magi show up in a number of occasions besides Matthew 2 and and before Matthew 2. In Esther one thirteen, the Bible says that these wise men influenced all the judicial appointments under the mighty Persian king Xerxes. In Jeremiah 39.3, we see a hard-to-pronounce name, uh, Nergal Saul ezer and he was the chief, the Bible says, of the Babylonian Magi. So they started amongst uh, uh, the, the, the Medo-Persians and then uh, the Babylonians. They're going to be with several different empires as the kingmakers. In Jeremiah 39.3, Nergal Saul ezer the chief of the Babylonian Magi, is standing alongside Nebuchadnezzar, and he's giving Nebuchadnezzar wise counsel because that's what the Magi do. They're counselors. In Daniel, we learn that the Magi were among the highest-ranking officials in ancient Babylon. Uh, When the great Magi could not interpret the dream, but the Hebrew Daniel could. Now, what were the Magi supposed to be best at? Interpreting dreams. But they couldn't interpret the dream. Who could? The Hebrew. And it probably greatly esteemed Daniel in the eyes of the Magi. Here's a guy who can do what we can't, and this is what we're best at. Now, it's interesting when you read the story of Daniel that when all the jealous satraps, the political lackeys, conspired to throw Daniel into the lion's den, there is no mention of the magi being part of that plot, probably because they were very impressed with who Daniel was. They were probably impressed by his deep piety, as were all in the community, but also with his uncanny ability to do what they were supposed to be able to only do, and that is interpret dreams. Daniel's fearless, faultless faithfulness, along with his high position within the Babylonian Empire, would have caused Daniel to rub shoulders with these Medo-Persian kingmakers, these counselors, these magi. They would have been in the same quarters together. And so doubtless if you know who Daniel is and his revelation at the end of the world and how that blazes into the book of Revelation, Daniel would have been a man who would have witnessed to those around him. And he probably witnessed to the Medo-Persian uh, kingmakers about a coming king, the king of kings, who would be born one day in backwater Judea. And as remarkable as it is that somehow an ancient Near Easterner would possess a great expectation of a soon-coming king from a little backwater like Judea? History tells us they did. History tells us again and again that there was an expectation among the nations that there would be a king, a universal king who would arise from Judea. Suetonius writes, not a believer, Quote, there had spread over all the Orient an old and established belief that it was fated that at the time for men coming from Judea to rule the world. Suetonius writes that in The Life of Vespian. Uh, You have another uh, historical attestation, a man named Tacitus, an ancient historian. Again, not a believer. Tacitus tells us, quote, there was a firm persuasion, and at this very time, the East was to grow powerful, and rulers coming from Judea were to acquire a universal empire. That's from Tacitus in his book, The Histories. So this expectation of a king from Judea crescendoed when a special star beckoned the Magi to make the arduous journey all the way from Mesopotamia to backwater Judea. The Magi's question in verse 2 was not, where is he who's born to one day perhaps become king of the Jews? But rather they asked, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? They didn't need to coronate anyone. They said there's already a king we've just come to celebrate. Now, in the Magi's mind, Jesus is not an heir apparent. He's a king right now. Listen to their question. Now, the English rendering of the Magi's questioning masks the intensity of the story. Uh, The ESV notes that men from the East came to Jerusalem saying... That sounds pretty innocuous, but when you read it in the Greek, you're going to learn more. So remember that word saying. Saying, where is he who's been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and we have come to worship Him. Now, in the original Greek, the word saying is a present participle. And that means it's emphasizing a continuous kind of action. The Magi basically were going all around Jerusalem repeatedly asking whoever they could find, where is He who's been born King of the Jews? You don't know? Where is He? Where is... Hey, where is... Where... Where... You see? Continuously they're asking. And as this column of famous foreigners traversing the streets with their large retinue of soldiers and servants, it's going to draw a bit of a scene, isn't it? And and, and perhaps the magi were a little bit taken aback because no one in Jerusalem seemed to know what they were talking about. Asking everyone and finding no answer. Now, Scripture says that word of this band of kingmakers soon reached the ears of Herod. Herod uh, the king. I'm going to put that in quotes. It's not really a king, it's a title. Look at the Bible, verse 3. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Okay, so, so Herod was troubled because the Magi were notorious kingmakers, clearly looking for a king, a king who rightfully belonged over the Jews. Whereas Herod knew he was an Idiomian and a usurper. Herod had the title king, but he, in fact, he wasn't even Jewish. Kind of hard to be king of the Jews when you're not Jewish. Herod was a descendant of Esau, that's an Edomite. And, and Herod basically bought the throne by befriending the hated Romans, the occupiers. And those occupiers conveniently slapped the title King of the Jews onto Herod's position, which was really, he was the governor of Judea, but he liked the title King of the Jews, and so Rome let him use it. The Jews resented Herod. They knew he had no legitimate biblical right to rule over them, And now, here's this group of ancient Eastern kingmakers, and they're going around saying, where's the true king of the Jews? That's going to trouble you if you want job security as a usurper who's hated, and only there because the occupier lets you be king. Proves a little unsettling to the power-hungry Herod. Herod is a very suspicious man. Uh, By this time, by the time this text is happening in Matthew 2, Herod is over 70 years old. His glory days are long since gone and he knew the people did not like him. They prayed for his replacement. So when you hear kingmakers have come to look for a true Jewish king, not a good day if you're Herod. So Wily Herod, he wasn't the least bit interested in letting go of the scepter of power. If he had anything to say about it, they'd have to pry the scepter from his cold, dead fingers. That was his plan. Herod was willing to bathe in the blood of every boy in Bethlehem, rather than allow God's appointed king to live one more day. That's how ruthless Herod was. Now, Herod's history was haunting him, which is why this present situation was so daunting to him. Herod was born to a man named Antipater, the Idiomian, and Herod... His father, Antipater, was the governor of Judea. And Antipater managed to have his young son, Herod, made prefect of the region of Galilee. And Herod ruthlessly crushed the Jewish guerrillas who tried to fight off Roman occupation in that region. But then something happened. There was a group of people called the the Parthians, the Parthians, uh, and they invaded Palestine. They're from Iran, basically. The Parthians are Iranian. And the Parthians just so happened to be where the Magi now hail. And so these Medo-Persian kingmakers who found inner sanctum in the Babylonian Persian and now Parthian courts uh, came and they shooed Herod away when he was a young man. And so Herod had to flee. And history tells us he fleed to Egypt to save his skin from Parthian invaders. Ultimately, Herod went from Egypt, he went back to Rome. And he cozied up to a, a, a young man named Octavian, And that was a really good decision because Octavian, (laughs) Octavian would go on to become Caesar and he would give his buddy Herod kingship over the place he had to flee. So once Herod was made governor of Judea by his buddy Octavian, Herod took Roman legions with him. And he went back to Judea, and there was several years of tense fighting, but eventually he drove out those Persian Parthian invaders, and Herod established a long season of brutal but highly efficient order, and his government was pretty much unshakable. He was an unshakable figure in his day. In fact, he's called Herod the Great, and we're going to talk about that in just a minute. He did many great things because he had such a long, effective reign. So in order to please the Jews who despised his Idiomian ethnicity and in the fact that he was a hated Roman collaborator, he married the most prominent Jewish woman he could find. It was a woman named Miriam. And she was the heiress to the Hasmonean house, which was sort of the, the ruling family of the Jews after the Maccabean revolt. So the idea is, well, I'm here. How do I make you people like me? I'll marry a Jewish woman. I'll marry into your aristocracy, and you'll kind of have to like me thinking that way. In his glory days, Herod could be a shrewd statesman. He could even be kind when it was politically necessary. In 25 BC, he melted down the gold objects in his own palace to buy food for his starving subjects when there was a great famine because he feared a great rebellion. So there were times when he was younger that he could play the game and even look magnanimous. But he was called Herod the Great because he was a great builder of things. And you could go around where he was, and you would see things that you shouldn't see in that area. Uh, Herod built theaters. He built racetracks. And he began expanding God's holy temple until it became one of the most elaborate structures of the ancient world. A monstrosity in God's eyes, a beauty in man's eyes. Funny how often those two things live together. Herod built a magnificent port city, and he shrewdly named it Caesarea, not Herodaria. Why do you think he did that? He named it Caesarea in honor of his political benefactor, Caesar Augustus, who's his old pal, Octavian. All right. So, Herod built things that even the Romans couldn't destroy. Uh, Herod built a remarkable and nearly impregnable fortress at Masada. It was so well constructed that 100 years later, 15,000 Roman legionnaires under the Roman general Flavius could not capture This motley crew of men, women, and children. There were only 1,000 people inside. It was men, women, and children. 15,000 legionnaires, two years of battle, never took Masada. Who built it? Herod the... Yeah, he's a great builder. Now, for all of Herod's political shrewdness, and he was very savvy, and for all of his engineering greatness, and he was one of the greats in the ancient world, Herod was most certainly not great when it came to his character. When it came to his personal morality... He had grave deficiencies. Herod had a terrible flaw in his character. He was insanely suspicious. If Herod even suspected someone could pose a rival to his power, that person was promptly eliminated. Historians tell us that Herod executed his wife, Miriam, and her mother, Alexandria, fearing that they were about to betray him. Herod had his eldest son, Antipater, named after his dad, killed. He had his two other sons, Alexander and Aristobulus, killed, fearing that they were trying to someday take away his throne. He'd kill anybody, wives, mother-in-laws, children. His own patron, Emperor Augustus, had a famous wordplay about Herod. The emperor said it was better to be Herod's pig, Huss, than Herod's son, HUIOS. Because the pig would live. The kid would not. So something of Herod's warped nature, get into Herod's mind, can be seen from the provisions he made when death was approaching Herod's life. When Herod knew that he was dying, he moved away from, from all the work in Jerusalem, and he moved to his loveliest city in Jericho, where there's the palm fronds, and it's pretty, and there's not the press of all the work, and he went to die in his lovely city of Jericho. And he gave orders as he neared his death, that there would be a collection of the most distinguished citizens of Jerusalem, and they were all to be arrested on trumped-up charges. Herod ordered, the moment he died, all those innocent, prominent men were to be executed. He grimly said, you know what, I'm well aware nobody's going to mourn when I die. And yet he was determined that tears should be shed during the time of, of ritual mourning of his state funeral, and they would be crying for these other people who were worthy. It's a ruthless dude. So, how would such a suspicious and ruthless man react when news reaches him that a child is born who's destined to be king, destined to take away the throne he spent 70 years studiously protecting? Well, scripture says Herod was troubled, the understatement of the year. <laughs> And all Jerusalem was as well. Because everyone knew, uh-oh, if Herod's troubled, then I'm in... Yeah. Matthew 2.4 says, "...and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them..." That's an important word. "...he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born." Inquired in the Greek is in the imperfect tense. It indicates that Herod was repeatedly probing the priests. Repeatedly asking the chief teachers of the law until he was satisfied that he knew beyond a shadow of a doubt where this Messiah was to be born. Now, these are Jewish priests and Jewish teachers of the law, but Herod is an idiomian. He doesn't know the Jewish scriptures forwards and backwards, so he brings in the guys who know everything. And and, and here's a scholar, F.F. Bruce. He says, Herod's heart that day was like this, quote, the foreigner and usurper feared a rival, and the tyrant feared the rival would be welcome." That's what's running through Herod's heart. Herod hears of baby Jesus, and he's enraged. He devises a plot to kill the child. And so he lies to the Magi to try and suck them in to his diabolical little scheme. But the Magi don't play ball. They're they're given in a dream, a warning, and they go a different route, a long, painful way home instead of the straight way. And so Herod has to make a plan, and he hedges his bets. He says, I'm just going to slaughter all the babies, that were born in Bethlehem and its vicinity. And I'm going to cover a spread one year in either direction of when this child was born. And that's why everyone to and under in the vicinity of Bethlehem who was a boy was killed. The Bible says, Now when they departed, behold, an angel of the Lord, verse 13, appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child and to destroy him. And he rose and he took Jesus and his mother by the night, and they departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. That's how Jesus escaped Herod's plan. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt, I called my son. Got to be born in Bethlehem and yet out of Egypt. That seems impossible, but nothing's impossible for. And God can work out any two prophecies that seem contradictory because he has a plan. Then Herod, when he saw that he'd been tricked by the wise men, he became furious. He sent and he killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region who were two years old and under, covering the spread according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. And then was fulfilled what was pro- spoken to the prophet Jeremiah. Again, fulfilling prophecy. A voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation and Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So this leaves really just one group left in our story. Um, After the worshipful Magi and the diabolical Herod, we are introduced to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. So who were these guys? The chief priests. They headed the 24 main orders of priests who lived around the city. Uh, David had set up 24 orders of priests. Uh, We're going to find out by the time of Nehemiah, there's only 22 still around. It seems that maybe two may have died out over the years. But nonetheless, the 24 or 22 chief priests castes. The chief priests consists of the current and the former high priests and their extended families. And so the chief priests were basically think of them as the priestly aristocracy in Israel of that day. And the teachers of the law they were different. They were the scribes. And the scribes inherited the ancient profession of of copying Scripture. They did it meticulously. They read every word aloud. They looked for the middle letter of the scroll. They made sure it had the right number of letters. If they didn't meet any of that criteria, they would uh, shred and then burn the scroll. They were professionalists. And so they, they, they copied Scripture. And if you copy Scripture every day, all of your life, for 100 years, you get pretty good at knowing Scripture. And so they became sort of the interpreters of the law, the appliers of the law, the experts of the law. So Herod calls for Israel's religious aristocracy, the the chief priests, and the theological scholars, the, the scribes, and he says, okay, I'm an Idiomian. Where in your Bible is this Messiah to be born? They don't miss a beat. They don't have to worry or wonder. They know. They take him to Micah 5.2. They know what their scriptures say. They say he'll be born in Bethlehem. And so then Herod sent the wise men, and he said, you, you take a look at Bethlehem. You figure out where the child is, and, and I'm going to go and worship him. And he wasn't going to worship him. He going to take him. He's going to kill him. So what happened? That's the story. There weren't three wise men. There weren't more. Uh, They they weren't there at the time of the nativity. They were there about a year later. Herod wants to kill this baby. This is what's happening 2,000 years ago in the Holy Land. But what difference does this make in 2018 over in Roseland? How does this apply to us? Good question. Our application boils down to one simple question, and it is this. What will you do, what will you do not your neighbor, what will you do with Jesus this Christmas? Now your options are the same three that are in our story today. There are really only three things you can do with Jesus. In Matthew 2, we see three groups of people and we see three options to do with Jesus. And the first is this. It's in your outlines, in in your bulletin today. If you open it up, there's three points. This is your first point. We're going to see in our story... That one option is this, that some people come against Jesus. Some people come against Jesus. And the Bible's pretty specific on what kind of people do this. And if it's a little pointed, I'm sorry, I didn't write Scripture, I just preach it, okay? So, The Bible seems to be teaching that, that arrogant and insecure people, like Herod, will use every means available to them to come against Jesus. In their arrogance and their insecurity, they come against Jesus. And in this process of arrogance and insecurity, Herod closed off his heart to God's love. And he set himself at war with the living God. And our arms are too short to box with God, aren't they? It's not a wise decision. And yet Herod, great engineering skill, had new math, new science, new politics, was savvy. But he was going to miss eternity because of his arrogance towards Jesus. Friends, arrogant and insecure people still come against Jesus in 2018. The unstable and hateful do so with bombs and guns. They enter churches around the world, hand grenades, pistols. But friends, intellectuals do this with poison-tipped pens, writing about Jesus and how he isn't God. And the Bible isn't true. We have comedians who do this with microphones on Netflix. You watch a special on Netflix and you can, you can make fun of everything? No, you can't. There's whole classes of things you can't make fun of. One of those classes isn't Jesus. That's the universal ability to joke. Isn't that interesting? Never say something against... When's the last time you heard somebody say something against Allah or Buddha? But Jesus, no problem. You see, the plays differ, but the game is the same. In their arrogance and insecurity, they're hostile to Jesus. Friends, we need to pray for these people. Jesus says, pray for those who persecute you. Don't hate them. Pray for them. We need to pray for these people that God's love would melt their heart so hate would be replaced with grace. I was one of those people. I only went to an after-school Bible study to mock the Christians. And through that, I eventually got saved. Paul was going out to kill Christians. And instead, he became a Christian. Nobody's unreachable, but are you praying for the people who right now are attacking Jesus in different ways? Now, there's three camps today, and I'm pretty suspicious that if you were in that first camp, you wouldn't be spending Sunday morning in the rain with us. eh? So that's probably not who you are today. My fear is that you may have not been in the first camp, but you may be very firmly in the second camp we need to talk about. You see, the second camp is the camp of the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They were so familiar with what God's word had to say. They knew right what, oh, that's Micah 5 two. that's your answer. They knew so well what God had declared, what God's word said about God's son, that they were not enamored when God sent his son. They missed it. Amazingly, the people who knew the most Scripture in our story today, they didn't send even one delegate to investigate. Let's see this Christ, This long-awaited Messiah we've waited our whole life to meet. Which brings us to our second point on our outlines. Number two, some people who should know better, they're going to simply ignore Jesus this Christmas. Some people who should know better are going to ignore Jesus this Christmas, It's really easy to do, isn't it? Will we get so caught up in the lesser that we miss the greater? Will we get so busy trimming the tree and decking the halls and exchanging gifts that we really never stop to worship Jesus this Christmas? But friends, there's another option. There's a better option. And it's point three today. And I encourage you to take this option. Wise men worship Jesus. Wise men worship Jesus as the Christ. The wisest thing you can do is follow in the footsteps of the wise men from the East who dropped everything and spared nothing so they could worship Jesus as the Christ. In, in verse 11, these ancient wise men, going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped him. They didn't worship Mary. They didn't worship the Holy Family. They didn't worship the Holy de- They worshiped Jesus. That's what we need to do this Christmas. Let's be wise this Christmas and let's pray together to that good end. Would you, would you bow your heads and close your eyes for just a moment? And let's ask for those of us who know Jesus personally. We're going to pray and then I want to speak to those of you that maybe, maybe haven't come to that place yet. But, but if you have put your faith in Jesus, it's really easy to be a chief priest and teacher of the law. We know this story. We can quote these Scriptures. Father, would You help us in all the busyness of Christmas to not be remiss in worshiping Jesus? Help us to pause and celebrate, not just shop until we hyperventilate. Help us, Lord, not to miss the Christ of Christmas in all this busyness. Amen. With your eyes closed, if you're here today, And you've been hearing about this Jesus. You know of Jesus. But maybe you've yet to invite Him to be your personal Lord and Savior. I want to encourage you, why not make this Christmas the most special, most memorable, most powerful you'll ever have by making it the first Christmas that you really worship the Christ of Christmas. You see, Jesus is God's one and only Son. And the Bible teaches that He lived virtuously. He was tempted in all points and yet never sinned. The Bible teaches that Jesus not only lived virtuously, but He died vicariously and voluntarily. He put our sin on His shoulders. God laid the iniquity of us all on His one and only Son. Jesus not only lived virtuously, never sinning, died vicariously, but He rose victoriously, proving that the devil and death and hell itself have no power... Over any follower of the author of life and perfecter of our faith. And so, if you are here today, God is willing to irrevocably adopt you into His family. And salvation is as simple as ABC A, you must admit that you're a sinner, you need a Savior. B, you must believe that Jesus is the Christ, God's Son, God in flesh, God's only answer to our sin problem, the only name under heaven by which we may be saved. And C, you must crown Jesus to be the new Lord of your life. You're not getting fire insurance by adding Jesus to your life. You're bowing your knee and saying, Lord, take over my life. You are Lord, I am not. The Bible puts it this way. It's called the Roman's Road. And it takes us... From sin to salvation. The Romans road starts in Romans 3.23. The Bible says all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. Because all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23 tells us, for the wages of sin is death. That's separation from God Almighty. But the verse doesn't end there. It says, for the wages of sin is death. That's what we earn. But the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's what He can give you. You can't earn it. You can only receive it. Romans 6.10 tells us the death, Jesus died. He died to sin once and for all. That's why there's no more sacrifice. When Christ went on the cross, the temple veil was torn, there's never again a lamb or a ram or a pigeon because the blood of God's one and only Son cleanses all sin. The death He died, He died to sin once for all. And friends, that brings us to Romans 10.9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, and you believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. Now right now you may be saying, you may be hearing the devil whisper in your ear, well, well, God won't save you. That's what He told me when I was wrestling with this many years ago. You've been indifferent to Jesus for too long. You've been indignant at Jesus too often. God doesn't love you. This is for someone else. Friends, you don't listen to that old devil 1 John 3.8 declares that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. Throw that lie away. He's a lying liar from Lyreville. He's the father of lies. And He comes to seek to kill and destroy. But Jesus comes to give you life. Let me tell you right now, as clear as I can be, God loves you. John 3.16 makes that clear. For God so loved the world. That includes you. That He gave His one and only Son that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you'd like to receive Jesus today, you can pray right here, right now, in the quietness of your heart with me. It's not a magical incantation. It's a sincere desire of your heart. and It's going to be your first day of new life. Your prayer can be expressed like this. Just pray with me if this is true for you. Father, forgive me, for I'm a sinner. And I know I can't save myself. And so I look to your Son to cleanse my sin. Be the new Lord of my life. I am yours. Be my God. Shape me into the person you want me to be for your glory and my good. And give me the courage to tell others about you. Amen.